If you want to be turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, this is on page 204 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have one with you, I encourage you to turn there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own that you can read, also would encourage you to take that home with you as our congregation's gift to you. Before we just plunge into this text, let's ask the Lord's help. Father, would you by your Spirit illumine our hearts to receive your Word, that we would hear it for what it really is, the Word of God. And we ask that as your Word to us, you might give us clarity to understand it, and that you might give us power to do it, trusting in the grace that you have provided for us in Christ. And we ask that you would use this time for your glory, to fill us with your presence, and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. We're going to take this text in two parts. It's very, very simple, just two halves of one sentence, and the first being in chapter 4, 1b through 11, that we see what happens when God goes. When God goes, first half of the sentence, when God goes. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now the focus shifts from Samuel back to the house of Eli at this point. And sometime after that call of Samuel we looked at a couple weeks ago and the the second prophetic condemnation of Eli's house that was first given to Samuel, Israel goes to war. The Philistines haven't been mentioned yet in this book, but their rivalry with Israel stretched back to the time of the patriarchs and it had been rekindled in a big way during the time of the judges. The Philistines occupied a portion of the promised land that the Israelites had been slow to claim. It hadn't been easy for them to overcome the Philistine forces there. But despite God's warnings, the people grew complacent 
about driving them out. They decided they had already enough of the promised land. And accordingly, just like God said, the Philistines became a snare to the Israelites. And in this particular conflict, Israel lost about 4,000 men in the first volley. Now, this is no small loss of life, but it signaled something even greater, something even more important. And that was that the Lord's presence was not with them. Once all the soldiers trickled back to their respective camps to regroup for the next round of fighting, the elders of Israel asked an insightful question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now what I find so fascinating about this question from these wayward leaders is that it is exactly the right question. You see, the Lord had plainly told His people multiple times in places like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that He would set His face against them and cause them to be defeated before their enemies. The elders were asking the right question. It was the Lord who had defeated His own people. And it was to show that His presence wasn't with them but they were wrong in the way that they tried to answer their own question. They decided that all they needed to do to have God's presence among them was to go and get the ark, and accordingly they would get the victory. After all, the ark symbolized and signified God's presence among His people, and so having the ark would mean having God's presence with them, right? Wrong. What the elders, the people, and the priests failed to understand was that the presence of the Lord was against them because they weren't with Him. The answer to their question was given to them in the immediate context of both of those passages, the Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, that it even led them to ask that question in the first place. God told them, if they turned their backs on Him by disobeying His Word, He would turn against them. He would remove His presence from them. But they wouldn't listen. Their defeat was meant to scream at them like a warning siren. Everything is not right between us and the Lord. And that's what happened in Joshua 7 when Israel lost 36 men at Ai. They sought the Lord in mourning, and the Lord told them that He wasn't with them and had defeated them because they had sinned. Until that sin was purged for them, He would not be with them, and they would not have victory over their enemies. And the people did what the Lord said. But here... With 110 times the amount of casualties, Israel still didn't get that their sin was to blame. Their hardness of heart kept them from seeing what was so glaringly obvious. God's people had abandoned God. So what about you this morning? Have you ignored signs in your life that point to the fact that you've abandoned God? Or maybe you're just taking steps away from Him? 
Are there consequences that you're experiencing that you have no desire to trace back to their source? Would you acknowledge that you've maybe slipped from where you once were? Well, when you see those signs, what do you do? And we see here under the leadership of the elders and with the affirmation of the priests, the people tried to address their problem by manipulating God. They treat God here like a means to an end. The logic goes something like this. Why did God defeat us? It must be because He wasn't with us. Okay, so let's get Him with us. Let's go and get the ark and then He'll be with us. You see, they think of God's presence more like a lucky charm to use instead of like a relationship to enjoy. They don't want to change, but they do want their outcome to change. They think that they can just pull God out of their back pocket whenever they need Him. They'll let Him, they'll, they'll go get Him, and they'll put Him to work fighting all of their battles, but then when the victory's been won, they'll just put Him right back into their back pocket for the next time they needed Him. But they were about to find out a very hard way that they were dead wrong. God will not and cannot be manipulated. In fact, so far from being manipulated to serve someone else's purposes, the king of kings was sovereignly orchestrating this entire scene to accomplish his purposes. When the people agree on the elders' plan to go and get the ark, who comes to the battlefield with it? None other than Hophni and Phinehas, the two wicked, worthless sons of Eli. The ark comes in, everybody shouts, they think their problems are solved. They think the Lord is with us and so we will win. Hophni and Phinehas are heroes. They brought the ark. Maybe they're hoisted on shoulders. They thought that God was right where they wanted Him, but they were right where He wanted them. See, this is true for the Philistines as well. The text says that they were afraid when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the Israelite camp. And like the Israelites, the Philistines assumed that meant God would be with them in their next battle. Now, the references to a God and God's plural shows the Philistines don't really know specifically with clarity who the God of Israel is. But to be fair, if they were learning who the God of Israel was from Israel, well, then they had every reason to think that they were a polytheistic nation like everybody else. But even with their misunderstanding of who this God was and is, they knew that this was the same God who had overthrown the Egyptians. His domination of the then reigning world power was legendary. The point being that if He did that to them, well then what is He going to do to us? Ironically, in verse 3, the Israelites think the ark is going to save them from the power of the Philistines. And in verse 8, the Philistines think no one can save them from the power of Israel's God. 
But because this battle was a part of God's plan, even though the Philistines are terrified with good reason to go against this God, so they think, they fought against Israel despite their fears anyways. And they still went forward because it was the will of the Lord to put Hophni and Phinehas to death. Chapter 2, verse 25. The Philistines defeated Israel again with seven and a half times more casualties than the first battle, even though the ark of God was with them. The narrator describes it as a very great slaughter. This is what the nation reaped for its years. Not just a little incidence, not just a little dip into rebellion, but years of continued rebellion against God. And just like that, the Lord's prophetic judgment from chapter 2, verse 34, was fulfilled against the two sons of Eli, just like God said. Friends, nothing good comes from abandoning God. We know that. It's not a controversial statement to make. But what we might miss is that seeking the good God gives instead of seeking Him is another way that we can abandon God. When we pursue God as a way to get what we really want, and it's not Him, God knows. He's not deceived. He's fully aware when we are attempting to manipulate Him. He is an all-knowing Father who can tell when we're only coming around and being respectful because we want something. It may not be to borrow the car or to ask for a few dollars like we've done with our earthly fathers. It may be something really great. Something like healing or for children or for promotion, or maybe even for a spouse. But if what we want takes the place of the one we need in our hearts, then we've abandoned God. Haven't we all experienced that it is so much easier to sense our need of God when things aren't going well for us than when they are? When we feel the pressure of something urgent or looming, we tend to pray with more and more passion. Why is that? Do we need God any less when things are going well for us than when they aren't? Well, of course not. Could it be that this really reveals that we care more about the gifts God gives us, even great gifts, than we do about God as the giver who remains constant in our lives regardless of our changing circumstances? If the gifts are still there, you have your comfort, you have your ease, you have your bank account, you have your spouse, you have your children, you have your job. 
but God's not there? Do you care? Do you notice? Now what about if any of those blessings are taken away? Do we find ourselves thinking, why did this happen to me? I don't deserve this. I read my Bible every day. I've gone to church faithfully for years, even on a holiday weekend. I've even given money to missions. I've never killed anybody or stolen anything. And this is how God repays me? Friends, if we're seeking good apart from God, we'll never find it. If we're seeking God only in order to find good, we'll never find Him. But if we're seeking God because we love and need Him, then we'll find Him and all these things will be added to us. So the first half, when God goes, and in the second half, His glory goes with Him. Verses 12 through 22. When God goes, His glory goes with Him. Pick up in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So the scene is pretty vivid. A fleeing soldier arrives back to Shiloh from the battlefield. And he tells the people the terrible news of Israel's catastrophic defeat and the capture of the ark of God. Now, Eli was sitting by the road staring off in the direction of the battle, but as a 98-year-old man before eye surgery, he couldn't see. And that means he couldn't tell that this was a fleeing soldier returning home in mourning. But he could hear the response of the city when they heard the report. The camp shouted in joy when the ark of God came in. 
But the city shouted in mourning when they heard the ark had been captured. And so much like the Philistines had done, Eli asked someone what was going on. So the soldier, now turned messenger, identifies himself to Eli and tells him in rapid fire succession, Israel fled, big losses, your sons are dead, the ark has been taken. Now it's all bad, but the fourth piece of this information about the ark is the worst, as indicated by Eli's response to it. At the shock of this news, Eli faints and falls to his death. So ends the life of Eli, Israel's long-standing judge and priest. And as the ears began to tingle with the news of God's judgment on Israel and Eli's house, just as the Lord had told the boy Samuel, there was one more step from Eli. From him to his sons and now to his grandson, all in the same day. When Eli's daughter-in-law heard the news of all that had happened, she was jolted into early labor. She eventually dies in childbirth, though the child lives. And the woman helping her tried to comfort her with the fact that she had a son, which meant that even given all that had gone on with Eli and her husband, that the family name would be continued on. But she didn't care. That wasn't a comfort to her. Because of the intense despair that she felt, chiefly at the loss of the ark. And as her life ebbs out from her body, she names her newborn son Ichabod, because the glory had gone from Israel. Now, I'm not trying to nag on a dying lady, but she was right that the glory had departed from Israel because the presence of God had left them. But what she failed to understand was that that happened a long time before the ark was taken. That happened when God's people abandoned Him. When they continued to abandon God, God abandoned them. And by Him allowing the ark to be captured, the Lord was giving His people a visible sign of what had long been true in their hearts. Now just a survey of this chapter, we seem to find death everywhere we turn. From the 4,000, then the 30,000, then Eli's two sons, then Eli, then his daughter-in-law. Everyone had to be wondering, does this mean the death of Israel? But in fact, as we'll see in the weeks to come, this judgment on, of God on Israel and on their leader's sin was actually preparing the way for their salvation. You see, by ousting their wicked leaders, God had made room for righteous ones. And by allowing the ark to be captured and their army to be defeated, God had signaled their relationship with Him was broken when they had been lulled into thinking it was fine. When God abandoned His people, He took His glory and with it the entire reason for their existence with Him. Now if you're here and you're not a Christian, what you may not understand is that you have abandoned God. 
When you have chosen to do what you want instead of what God says, you have walked away from Him. Your sin has broken your relationship with the God who made you. And when that happened, you rejected the very purpose for your existence. God created you and me and everything to glorify Himself. And when we abandon His presence in our sin, we become unable to glorify Him because when God goes, glory goes with Him. But when the whole world had abandoned God, God sent His Son to the world. When the presence of God the Son came to His people, glory came with Him. You'll remember the angels announced His birth singing, Glory to God in the highest. He was recognized as an infant in the temple, as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And throughout His public ministry, Jesus displayed His glory through His teaching and miracles. He was welcomed into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to shouts of, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But what Israel and Jesus' disciples failed to understand was that this glorious one came to suffer ingloriously. Here in 1 Samuel, God's judgment fell on Israel because of their leader's sin to prepare the way for their salvation. But in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the judgment that God's people deserved for their sins fell on Jesus to secure their salvation. The wrath for their sins, our sins, the abandonment of God that we deserve was experienced by Jesus on the cross. Psalm 80, excuse me, 78 explains our passage this way. They tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath. And he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave His people over to the sword and vented His wrath on His heritage. Friends, in an eternally greater way, this is what the Father did to His Son on the cross. He allowed His Son to be arrested, mocked, beaten, spit upon, publicly humiliated, and nailed to a tree. He delivered His power to captivity, His glory to the hand of the foe. He judged His Son to provide His people salvation. He allowed His Son to be defeated, if we want to put it that way, to secure His people's victory. It looked like all was lost into Saturday as they laid His body in the tomb. 
But when God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, the truth was revealed once and for all. Jesus is God. The victory has been won. And that will be true for you this morning. If you will turn from your sins to believe in Jesus today. God offers to each of us a restored relationship with himself. He offers us himself. You see, you have abandoned God, just like all the rest of us. But if you will put your faith in Jesus, he will never abandon you for all eternity. But if you refuse, and you continue down your path of abandoning God, then the day will come when God will abandon you forever. He will give you what you have chosen, an existence away from his glorious presence in an inglorious place called hell. Now the death found in this passage sadly will not compare to what you will experience there if you refuse to accept this salvation that has been provided in Christ. It will be eternal and it will be just because you have sinned against an eternal and good God. Friend, nothing good comes from abandoning God. So then come to the God who will not abandon His people by believing in Jesus this morning. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be glad to talk to you at the end of this service. Now church, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, referenced over ten times in this passage, was significant because it signified God's best and greatest promise under the Old Covenant. And that's that God's presence would be with His people what made Israel unique as a nation among all the other nations of the earth was the presence of God. When God's presence left, there was nothing significant about them anymore. They had no glory of their own. And here's what we need to understand. If that was true for them... then is there a way that that can be true for us as Christians and as a church? I think in one sense it is. If God's presence is not with us, the glory is gone. If we have God's presence, we will exist for His glory. Now as Christians, we treasure the fact, the biblical truth, that the Holy Spirit fills us. We stake our lives on the promise that our God will never leave us nor forsake us. So I'm not suggesting that it's possible for born-again believers to ultimately abandon God. However, the way we live out that glorious truth is by drawing near to God one day at a time and not by comforting ourselves as we pursue sin by thinking that God will never abandon us. That's what Israel did here. 
said, God's with us. There's no problem. We can pursue our sin and live exactly like these nations around us, but there's no problem with us and God. They were wrong. It would be wrong in, for us in the name of after having a salvation experience for us to assume that we can pursue sin headlong over the course of our lives and pat ourselves on the back and think that everything's okay. It's not true. Eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Which we treasure as Christians. Specifically even as Southern Baptists is gloriously true. Praise the Lord, it's true. That's why we sing songs like, He will hold me fast with passion. However, if we think that this happens mechanically, as in you flip this switch, you check this box, and suddenly you don't have to fight to pursue the Lord day by day by day. You don't have to kill your pet sins. Then time will reveal the truth. That we haven't actually changed. We've just cleaned up for a time. Brothers and sisters, if we tolerate sin in our lives or in the life of our church, it may not feel like taking steps away from God. We might even call it grace. Champion it as freedom that we have but we will be on the path to have our name changed to Ichabod. Now Trent read one of the letters to the seven churches from Revelation 2 and 3, and I would encourage you to read the rest of them this afternoon if you're fuzzy on this point. But when Jesus himself tells some of these true churches that He will remove their lampstand if they don't repent, then we had better sit up and take note, the God whose zeal for His own glory led to the massacre of Israel in 1 Samuel 4 is still just as zealous that those who bear His name as Christians cast light on His glory today. And we must commit ourselves to pursue the Lord together with all that we are and seek to help one another do the same. And when we do, although we might not be impressive or glorious in the world's definition of the terms, based on the metrics that maybe some churches, some people use to determine what's glorious, our great God will display His glory in us in eternity-impacting ways. So then may we be a people consumed with the glory of God because of His presence in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that we would be consumed with a passion for Your glory in all things, beginning first in our lives as individuals and also in our life together as a church. Father, we take great comfort in the fact that although there was a great massacre in Israel, you did not wipe them out. We take comfort in the fact that although Christ writes to these seven churches and in most cases tells them to repent or their lampstand will be removed, he did not just flatly remove them without warning. So we thank you for the warnings of your word. 
that tell us the way in which we are called to go. And we ask that as we heed these warnings, by pursuing your presence above anything that even comes from your presence, you might cause us to be a church that displays your glory in a beautiful way that shapes our community and that shapes our world for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.